Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vritnach, a historian reading novels for filth so you don't have to. Though I think you should read some of them, but probably not for the smut. Maybe the literary merit or the laughs. If you'd like to support the show, there are links in the show notes to Patreon and the web shop. Buy a sticker or maybe leave a review. Anything at all. At last, I have finally gotten round to Sean O'Fuelloin, one of the giants of mid-20th century Irish literature. His novel, Bird Alone, was published in 1936 and banned that same year. This experience provoked years of anti-censorship work. He wrote essays, founded a radical journal, and protested against censorship as loudly as possible. He was a public intellectual in a state that used the censorship legislation to target writers like him. By any measure, he was a big deal in Irish cultural life. It was particularly galling for the establishment to be criticised by a man with O'Fuelloin's impeccable nationalist credentials. He had fought in the War of Independence and later on the Republican side in the Civil War. He was also a Catholic who never disavowed Catholicism. All of his critiques were those of an insider, so he couldn't be easily dismissed. He didn't even disagree with censorship in principle, just the extreme version that Ireland produced. But I wanted to actually read his work and learn more about that rather than focus on his activism. So I chose his second novel, Bird Alone. It's set in his home place, Cork City, and is written from the point of view of Corny Crone, a young man embarking on a great love affair. So this is the blurb from the back of the book. With the anti-clericalism of his Fenian forebears strong in his veins, Corny Crone sets out to destroy the holiness enveloping the girl he loves. That does not sound great. Bit odd. But the rest of the blurb doesn't get any better. It says, This book's society choice, from a master storyteller, contains all that is Ireland. The humour, the passion, the contradiction. God, sounds awful. But my commitment to the podcast is such that I got over my revulsion at that paddywhackery and read the book anyway. I also persuaded a guest to talk to me. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Delaney from Trinity College, Dublin. Paul has written about Bird Alone in his 2014 study called Sean O'Fuelloin, Literature, Inheritance and the 1930s. He's also written about William Trevor and Colm Tobin, but they've not been banned in Ireland, so he's joining me to talk about Sean O'Fuelloin this time. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Aoife. How are you? It's great to, be, great to be here today. Yes, it's good. It's very good to talk about Sean O'Fuelloin. He's one of those people that I've always known existed, but strangely enough, I don't read him very often. It's hard too, to be honest, Aoife, partly because he's almost entirely out of print. Um, it's astonishing. O'Fuelloin was in his day one of the most important, most influential Irish writers. Uh, he lived a very long life. He lived for the best part of the 20th century. He died when he was in his early 90s. But today, he and for quite some time, he's been almost entirely out of print. So it's something which is beginning to change again. And maybe it's to do with the vagaries of publishing and so on. But um, yeah, I think you're probably in the majority, you know, I think actually at the moment. 
Yeah, it's fascinating because, of course, like I know his name. He's just everywhere in, you know, modern literary system. And in Cork. Hello. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Although, you know, we have murals in this city of Irish writers and they don't have Sean Afuelo and or Frank O'Connor in them. Yeah, did you? I don't know if I should share you. I, I was just in advance of today. He said something funny about Cork. I don't know if I should say this. Do you know what he said about being in Cork? What? Do you know this? He, he talked about how Cork wasn't a place for sensitive people. I don't know if you <laughs> if you know that. He said in order to succeed in Cork, he says, you have to have the skin of a rhinoceros, the dissimulation of a crocodile, the quality of a hare and the speed of a hawk. He said, otherwise, the word for every Cork man and indeed Cork woman, is to get out and get out quick. <laughs> there might be a reason why he's not on murals in Cork. <laughs> yeah, he just offended everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. <laughs> so today we're talking about Bird Alone, which was published in 1936 and banned the same year. They didn't uh, let the grass grow under their feet on that one. You know the way I try and figure out why, if they actually mm-hmm. read it, why it yes. was banned. And I thought, for me, the first part was on page 37. Yeah. The main character, Corny, who's Cornelius, of course, he's speaking to his grandfather, who he calls his grander. And he is, his grandfather is uh, given out stink about his own brother who ran away with an actress, I think. That's right, yeah. It's got some interesting undercurrents where grander may, in fact, have fancied the actress rotten and his brother got mm-hmm. in before him. Um, yeah. And so he's given out stink and he's complaining and he decides to quote Shakespeare and it's written then in a mean whining voice like a core core. He sniveled, my Lord, I have remembrances of yours that I've longed long to deliver. I pray you now receive them. Now, I'm not going to put on a Cork accent for that because that's just too weird. (laughs) But I suppose, first of all, saying the word whore might be a bridge too far. Uh, Corcor, like an Irish one, and then making Ophelia into a whore. I mean, he's doing three bad things there. So that was my thought. No, I think you're. I think it's fair. I, I think that. Do you know? I think there are a number of reasons why this book was banned. More generally, if if I could, um, yeah. And and I think that one of the is certainly is more generally is that kind of subtext of sex which is writ through this book. Um, that you know, there's actually quite a lot about the body in this book. And this is something that Ophelon as a writer was hugely interested in, really genuinely interested in, and thought that it was time for Irish writers to seriously represent it. Um, and he felt that that some writers had, but in the main, Irish writing had not. In addition, I suppose, there was a simple thing, and that was that by the time this book was published, this was the second of Ophelon's books to be banned. The previous was uh, his first short story collection, Midsummer Night Madness and Other Stories, which was set against the backdrop largely of the Irish War of Independence and Civil War. And that was banned for a couple of reasons, and especially because of a short story called The Small Lady, in which a woman uh, who has informed on the IRA and to the Crown forces is captured by the IRA and is um, executed the following morning. And just before her execution, the night before her execution, she um, makes love to one of the the soldiers. And the, the, the book was banned up because of that, because of that story. O'Fuelon, in the interim between 1932 and 1936, really campaigns very, very heavily against censorship. He is really angry about the banning of Midsummer Night Madness. And he's more, he's also very, very, very angry about the more general um, extension of the use of censorship in Ireland since its uh, introduction in the late 1920s. And he, he really begins to become very, very, very incensed about the use of censorship in Ireland. And he becomes so public about it and so critical that there is an argument that I think there's a guy, Peter Martin, who's written a wonderful history of censorship in, in this stage. But he, he suggests that actually this book was largely banned because directly of clerical interference and that this was banned because O'Fuelon had basically criticised the church in Ireland to such an extent that this was their, if you will, their their response, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. That, that, that he was, if you like, he was almost a marked man by the time this book comes out. And as you say, then he begins with the references, the references to a cork whore. Um, and he plays up, doesn't he, that kind of historic association between actors, um, between actresses, I should say, and prostitution. And that's in the background of that story, isn't it, in, in relation to, to Quark. Um, I, I, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that would make sense to you as well. I, I think that it's partly because of sex um, for definite. And this becomes more important as the novel proceeds. Um, I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I think the book was banned as well was quite simply was because of the way it engages with the relationship between Corny and Elsie. Yes, I mean it's you know it's courting but with sex. So oh yeah, that's absolutely, <laughs> it is, isn't it? It like it is very very explicit in this book that Corny and Elsie are lovers, and in a sense, O'Fuelon draws on that kind of classic trope of star-crossed lovers. You know, that the, a young couple whom are being drawn together, but their fates are being pulled apart by their parents and by the church and all of this kind of stuff going on. But their attraction is so great that it ends up in this book with them having sex outside of marriage. And indeed, Elsie gets pregnant. Um, and then what's more, Elsie tries to, there are ideations of, and she, she tries to commit suicide. And it's like, my God, <laughs> you know, I, I think if, if the church were, were gunning for O'Fuelon, he gave them a lot of ammunition with this book, you know, um, that there's a lot of good, there's a lot of reason insofar as there was any reason to, to ban. Um, and that this book, this book was, as you say, very quickly banned. So that's interesting because I was wondering, was he singled out uh, for personal attention by the censors because he was such a pain in the ass about it you know he didn't he shut up he <laughs> talked about it all the time he never stopped criticizing it a lot of authors I mean they just kind of you know it was just an occupational hazard but he never he never lay down and took it and I was wondering whether that book was part of singling him out in that way I, I think it was I think it was and I think if anything then it only just um it, it only just consolidates his hatred of censorship in Ireland, um, that it leads to some very specific things. Um, for instance, one of the things it leads to is a very important early essay of his, which was published in the radical journal Ireland Today, kind of a short-lived journal in Ireland in the late 1930s. In 1936, the same year as the banning of Bertalone, O'Fuelon writes an essay called The Dangers of Censorship. And it's published in Ireland Today, and it's partly occasioned by the banning of Bird Alone, but also by the banning of two other books at the same time by Irish writers, um, Francis Hackett and Francis Hackett's novel, The Green Line. And The Green Line, I don't know, is one of these novels which have long since fallen out of print. But The Green Line basically is the story of the illegitimate child of a seminarian. <laughs> which you could imagine was always going to court controversy. And the other was Austin Clark, the poet Austin Clark, who's, who wrote a novel called The Singing Men at Cashel. And basically, Clark writes uh, a romance of religious orthodoxy and of personal freedom, of a clash between religious orthodoxy and personal freedom in medieval Ireland. And he uses kind of medieval Ireland as a way to talk about the contemporary. He uses it, you know, as a lens through which to talk about it. He displaces it. Each of these books are banned. O'Fuelon knows uh, Francis Hackett very well. He's friends with him. He knows Clark as well. And he is incensed by the banning of those two books along with his own. And he writes this really important essay called um, The Dangers of Censorship. Um, and it isn't the first, but it's one of the earliest really, truly significant anti-censorship texts that O'Fuelan writes, which he'll continue then to do for the next 30 years. So, yeah, you're right. He will be a pain in the ass right the way up to the point when he's editing the bell in the 1940s, is involved in civil liberty movements in the 1950s. And indeed, in the mid 60s, he gives a very, very, very interesting short kind of cameo appearance on Peter Lennon's very controversial, was it banned? I'm not quite sure, unofficially banned, perhaps, film, um, The Rocky Road to Dublin, in which O'Fuelan is just caustic 
about the state of Ireland and he excoriates the church and the state. Um, so he really is. Uh, he yeah, the, He's really angry with the banning of this book. It is quite a sensitive text. I mean, he isn't being provocative in a, you know, a kind of an ugly or a coarse way. He is trying to explore ideas around sex and also, I suppose, growing up. In some ways, it's a novel about growing up. Corny and Elsie are incredibly young and they have to grow up through their courtship and through what happens to them and to their bodies. So it is trying to be an intelligent book. You know, it isn't a test case in the sense of provocative no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I'd agree entirely. If, uh, I, I think that he's not writing a sensationalist text. You know, the, the sex, which is here, pardon me, in this text, isn't, isn't front and centre. It's not there for the sake of it. It's rather because we have two young people who really do fancy each other, you know, and, and, and they actually try not to, you know. And I think yeah. that that's one of the important things too, especially Elsie. Oh, yeah, very much so. She's kind of persuaded into it at the very beginning, isn't she? She is. And I, I think one of the things which is quite interesting with this book is, it, you know, like on the one hand, it seems to me what O'Foylan does is he, he draws on kind of classic models. There are texts that he's looking to as kind of as archetypes. You know, there's a lot about Faust in this story and the Faustian myths is here. Very strong. There's a lot of references to Shakespeare, as, as you mentioned yourself. There's a lot, and especially to Hamlet and Ophelia, mm. and that that's one of the key texts that O'Foylan is utilising in this. So you have this sense, again, of, of a, a young couple being drawn together, very young couple being drawn together, being pulled apart, and trying them trying to trust themselves and one another. Um, and in Elsie's case especially, I suppose, because she she is very there's a very strong sense that she's a very strong practicing Catholic that this is against everything she believes and O'Foylan is very very interested in that tension in that struggle between if you like almost between your body and between the mind or you know in, in that kind of way if you morals uh, and faith kind of mind absolutely um so that when if you remember late in the text when Elsie is, when, when she's near death and she's terrified not of death and she's terrified not because of the child that she has lost, the unborn child, but she's terrified because of the sin that she committed as she sees with with uh, with them, Corny. And that that becomes a real kind of moral fulcrum for the text, that sense of, of genuine fear. Of, of sin and consequently of her dying without being relieved of that sin, without any sense of penance or any sense of, of um, absolution. And O'Foylan is very interested in that. Now, you know, he I don't think he fully believes it, but he's very interested in that. And that sense of the absolute terror of someone like Elsie at that point, which is real. Um, I think it's very, very telling that, you know, Elsie dies without uh, a priest coming in time to give her Yeah, that was rights. terrible. But it also, was really cruel. Yeah, it was really cruel. Was, yeah, it's so unfair. I mean, in, in Catholicism, <laughs> to die without without the last rites from the priest is pretty serious. It's nearly the worst thing that can happen to you. So it, it was horrendous. Yeah, and if you think like, so this is in a text of the 1930s, so it's even worse, but then like he's actually imaginatively projecting further back and into the 1890s. So it's so long ago that for her to do this, for this to have to happen with this weight of, of a sin on her is really, really important. When they first have sex, it's kind of on the hill overlooking uh, the Lee Fields, I think, from the way they're describing it. And he's, you know, he's obviously asking or pressuring in some way. And she says the, what I thought was the weirdest thing. She says, but all Cork and the nuns in their little beds. <laughs> what? I mean, so this sexual relationship is to be visible to the whole city, but particularly the nuns. <laughs> in their little beds. <laughs> you know, and I thought it was an interesting way of how people would articulate their understanding of transgressive sex, that it was a hugely public act, even if it's in the middle of nowhere, in a forest. It's actually like people will know on some level that you have committed a sin or broken the rules or whatever. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, like on the one hand, I think one way of one way of, I think, reading that scene and quite a number of scenes in this novel is just to think, oh, my God, Ophelan can be really cringy when he <laughs> writes, you know, he can get it so wrong. And <laughs> and in fairness, sometimes I think that is absolutely true. <laughs> Do you know what? I think that's an instance of it. I, I think as someone who is, you know, I've read a good bit of Ophelan now at this stage. Um, I don't think he always writes women very well. I think actually he often writes women very badly. Um, there are some instances maybe in some of the shorter fiction where, you know, it's not quite the same, but but I think in, in this novel for sure. I think as well, though, I, I think that sense of people struggling to articulate, uh, like I'd agree with you, Eve, on that completely. Um, there is the sense in which, again, I think it's in his autobiography. He, he He's very angry when he thinks back to the world that he grew up in and the kind of education he got. Ophelan was very well educated. Like he, 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 he was. He went through the secondary school at a time when relatively few people, you know, in Ireland would have gone through um, secondary school. He went to to UCC. Yeah, he was um, awarded a scholarship to study in the United States to do further postgraduate work. He he was very, very, very well educated for his time and 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 class. But he felt that as a child growing up, that one of the things that 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 Ireland didn't do was teach young boys and men, sorry, young boys and young girls about about their bodies and about sexuality. And he talked about, in his terms, in his words, he talked about throwing, he said, talked about the young people being thrown out, he said, naked to the wolves of life. And like, it, it has a hugely contemporary resonance still. Oh, hugely. I mean, it's, it's remained an issue in Ireland up until probably extremely recently. Yeah. And and like it is something that he detects certainly in the early 60s. And he's like he's articulating it then, but he's he's thinking about it much earlier than that. And that sense that for someone like Elsie, how does she articulate her fear? How does she articulate? And that might be a slightly kinder way of excusing him for the cringiness <laughs> of, of what it is that Elsie actually says. Maybe maybe we're looking for something here, but I, I don't think it's entirely that. I think that there is the sense, certainly, that Elsie can't articulate her desire. Um, and she she struggles to, to reconcile that desire with, with the faith that she genuinely has and believes in. And that that, that, that is something that remains very difficult for her. I thought it was hilarious as well, that particular line. I mean, it just stuck with me, but that anyone, I mean, that it's so Cork. I mean, the insistence, the foregrounding of Cork throughout the book, um, he constantly talks about like someone's accent being this type of Cork accent or the other type of Cork accent. And I sometimes wondered you know, how was it received in the sense of did people feel that this was an overly restrictive setting that he placed it in, that he rooted it so strongly in Cork? Did they feel like they missed things or was that considered an interesting aspect of the text? I, th- I think that's a really interesting point. And, and, and I suppose I should probably like I, I preface it by saying I'm actually not entirely sure. <laughs> um, but, do you know, like one of the a text that this is often um, I suppose considered alongside, and it's certainly a big, certainly was very influenced by it. Is Joyce's um, a portrait? The artist is a young man. There are very clear echoes of a portrait in this in this book, um, not least with its post Parnellite setting and and so on. It, the influence of the church, the influence of education, um, rebellion, um, the rebellion against of, of a youth against everything, against the parents. All of you know, these are quintessential Joycean kind of tropes, of course. But but there is a sense that what there, you know, I think one could easily say that one of the things O'Fallon's doing is he's kind of doing for Cork, in a sense, what what Joyce does for Dublin. <laughs> now, I don't know if he quite does that, but that may be a kind way again to read it. I'm not sure. But like, I, I love the Cork references, too. You know, yeah. I, I, I one of the like one of the things I I fell in love with when I read this book first, and I still think it's it's truly masterful, was the idea of the grander, the grandfather, um, reading bizarrely the story of Faust 
to his grandchildren as bedtime story reading. And the way in which that story is told, the way in which the grandfather tells the story is is wonderful because he relocates it to Cork (laughs) and he relocates. He has the devil saying things like me, bucko. You know, which, you know, and it's glorious. And he actually tells us that Faust lived under the bell tower, under the, under, under the fish, you know, in, <laughs> in Shandon. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just it's so much. He must have had so much fun coming up with that as an idea. I mean, it is so extraordinarily Cork that I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was close to... Um... McInerney's recent books that's what it reminded me of wow okay Um, yeah so like I haven't read anything that cork since I read her work so it is it is just so interesting and I I did think of Joyce as well as in you know but how how successful Joyce has been in constructing Dublin and how utterly unsuccessful Bird Alone has been in making (laughs) an impression on our vision of cork even though I think it is its description of it's around Elizabeth Fort and all of the darkness of the houses and then the beautiful Lee Fields with the expansive mm. River Valley. I mean, it should it should be well read in Cork and become part of our streetscape. But uh, maybe the man himself just made so many enemies. No one wanted to integrate him into us. Yeah, he's certainly an abrasive figure, I, I think would be fair to say. I, I, you know, I, I think that he, you know, he, he I yeah, he... I think he was difficult, you know. Maybe that would be the, the the polite way to put it. Like I think there, you know, he does extraordinary things, but I, I think he also made a lot of a lot of enemies. Um, it was funny actually. I, I, like as an aside, I give you an example of this. Um, as a young man, he's cutting his teeth in the like in the late twenties, and he's reviewing quite a bit. And um, he George Russell, who was a, a very important. Um, mentor of his um, forwarded him a copy of part of um, what was work in progress, what would become Finnegan's Wake. And O'Fuelon reviews it for the Irish Statesman and writes a damning review, really damning review. Um, now, O'Fuelon really admires the younger Joyce, and, and he, he'll talk about this later in the course of his life. He really admires, he, he doesn't like the, the more experimental Joyce. And that's partly to do with his own aesthetic preferences, you know, for certain types of realism and so on. But um, he he goes on, he got into a bit of a spat then with with, with one of Joyce's publishers um, and, and so on. But, you know, I, one can't but think that it was partly Fuelan trying to make a name for himself. Like he was very good at self-promotion, <laughs> extremely good um, at that, you know. Um, but bizarrely, when he publishes Bird Alone, he sent a copy of it to Joyce to see if Joyce would be interested in reviewing it. Good Lord. It's like, like as if Joyce would have forgotten that this young pup had said this about work in progress. You know, it's just, it's bizarre. It's so, 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 so funny. Now, like we know, of course, that at this stage, Joyce was reading very little by the late thirties. Mm. His eyesight was exceptionally poor. And um, some of the, a lot of work was being read to him. Um, and so on. He, but he does to go he, like he will read or have read in part to him. And um, just a couple of years later, uh, Flann O'Brien's At Swim Two Birds, you know, um, as one of the, the last texts that that that, that Joyce will publicly comment on in that in that way or, or in a letter anyway. Um, but yeah, for some reason, O'Fallon assumed that Joyce would want to read it. <laughs> um, but no, he, he had no shortage his... of, uh, you know, self-regard, Sean O'Fallon. <laughs> No, he didn't. I think that would be fair. I think that would be fair. I think, though, you know, in fairness to him, there's a sense that he's self-fashioned. I think he's self-made. Mm. And I think he's growing up in a time and in an environment which is extraordinarily tough for him to do. You know, he's growing up in an environment, quite simply, where writers aren't trusted in Ireland. Mm. Do you know? He's unusual of his generation as a writer who stays in Ireland. Like most leave. Um, most leave because of censorship or because of because of opportunities or, you know, just because of how stifling this country is. Um, O'Fallon was away. He was in North America studying. And then he, he moved back and he was in England for a couple of years um, teaching. 
in the late 20s, very early 30s, before he actually makes the decision with his wife, Eileen, to come back to Ireland. Um, so they're, 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 they actually go reverse to the trend of mm. many people. And I think for him to do that, I think, I suppose you'd almost have to have a, a big self-regard. You'd, you'd almost have to be that mentally tough. Yeah. Um, because like, I, I think the kinds of pressures that writers were under, artists were under in Ireland at that time, I think I think it'd be hard to us for us to fully appreciate them now. Yeah, I think it it does demand a certain sort of personality to not only to continue to write, but to campaign against censorship and you know to be a minor public figure in that sense, and still try and create art in the context of an extremely repressive society. I think that's very true. It's funny, like Ophelon soon after this. After this, like in in nineteen, this Bertalone is published nineteen thirty six, as you say, and the following year he'll he'll publish one of his finest collections of short stories, his second collection, A Purse of Coppers, which is just which is really very very good. Um, now Phelan will find himself drifting more and more and more into essay writing. Now he he he'll publish a third novel, which is a disaster in nineteen forty. He's not very good at at some novels. But he'll actually really, over the next decade, for the best part, really become com- almost completely absorbed in essay writing and in kind of public debates. And he'll get himself, through the course of his early 40s, more and more entangled in these, primarily through his editorship of The Bell, founding The Bell, which is such a hugely important cultural journal. And it through, he uses The Bell for a number of things, one of which really is a vanguard in the fight against censorship. And that, but by the mid to late 40s, he'll actually be exhausted by that. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, he finds himself, he actually has to step back in order to begin writing creatively again. That's so much of his energies. So I think that sense of, I, that, that difficulty of being invested in these kinds of debates but actually trying in some way to juggle that with being a creative writer in a climate which really distrusts creative writing and especially Irish creative writers um, is, is very, very difficult for him. Yeah, he worked hard. He really did, you know. <laughs> I don't know how he managed it. No, no he's a, he, is a, like, he really is a towering figure. He is a huge, and he's a hugely important influence then on, on the next couple of generations. Do you know either writers that he'll nurture, but also writers then in turn who'll kick against him, you know, which is an important thing too. So there's that generations will come up and he will be that totemic figure that they will fight against and they will, you know, pitch their argument against. Um, and, and I think he quite enjoys that too, that, that kind of sense of, of grandeur, do you know, which comes later in his life. I suspect he did anyway. Personally, I think one of the things he's doing in this novel, and I certainly think there's an element of a writer who has long left his native city, but who is kind of imaginatively reconstructing it. And I kind of see it in part as kind of, you know, it's almost kind of like a love letter to Cork. Do you know, there's something quite loving about the city, you know, for all of his slagging it off. Um, a little like his great contemporary and friend, Frank O'Connor, you know, there's a very strong sense that their associations with Cork are complex, um, but they are really enduring. They have a very enduring love of the city, I think. Yes, much like their, you know, the issues around faith. It's what you learn when you are young and that it is hard to ever really shake it off. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as a result, it will be the cork of the turn of the century, you know, because that's the cork that they grew up with. And um, that's the cork of Foylon will remember is the cork of the tens and tw- the 1900s through to the early 20s. That That's really his his time before he begins to move to Dublin. Can I ask, like, one of the things you mentioned, or just earlier, should say, was that you mentioned how, you, as you were reading this, you thought of um, of, of the young offenders. <laughs> Yes. And I was intrigued by that as a fan of The Young Offenders. I was thinking, I'd say O'Fuelan would have loved that, loved <laughs> their side reference. Um, I'm not sure you would have known what to make of it, but I'd say you would have loved it. What, what, how did you see that just as a Corkonian? I suppose I just felt that I could see Corny in that mode. Now, I know he's yeah. not part of a double act like the lads sure. in The Young Offenders. Indeed. But 
he he feels like you know he feels like a bit of a wide boy and he's kind of like he's trying to be cool and he's 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 young and he's hip and he's trendy and you know very self-consciously and the whole relationship with you know an uh, a woman outside of marriage and all of the family conflict that that brings in i mean the young offenders obviously doesn't have all of that catholic guilt stuff going on because th- times have changed but i felt that it is that star-crossed lover is the eternal story and the young people and the the immersive corkness of the text really so self-conscious so clearly articulated and reinforced and i just that's what it reminded me of the young offenders you know the young fellas and so cork yeah no i i, I when you said it I, I was thinking a lot and i was thinking gosh it's such a good description of it as well because there's that lovely sense of you know the, the way in young the young offenders are they're always on the move you know they're always mapping out their space you know and they're they're actually kind of claiming that space for themselves and because I think that that is really one of the things clearly Ophuela is trying to do in this text, like he is trying to claim Cork. And I think that this is, if you will, just in a slightly broader cultural field, this is what he wants Irish writers to do with the bell in 1940. But it's what he and Frank O'Connor and a number of his contemporaries are really trying to do post-revival, post-independence, is trying to encourage people to write about small parishes in Ireland. Mm. You know, it's Patrick Cavanaugh will do it, you know, with Monaghan. That sense of trying to write about areas you know, you know, Kate O'Brien will do about Limerick, you know, areas you know that are yours and trying to kind of claim them through art, claim them mm. through literature. And I think that that is really something he is actually also trying to do. So that, it, you know, if you will, it's it's almost, I'm hesitating not to say post-colonial, but there is a kind of, there is certainly kind of an attempt to write back against other representations of the city and other representations from, from without. And rather like this is the voice of a Corkman writing about the Cork he knows and loves and mapping it out in text in, in a, at times a local idiom. So you can see how I just, the links with something like Young Offenders where you can enjoy and celebrate that idiom do you know, uh, is it just seems to me there's almost there's a lovely trajectory there. Yeah, and you're right about movement. I mean, in in the young offenders, they're always moving. You know, they're always walking, driving, cycling, and Corney spends his whole time walking. He's just walking constantly. There's this sense of he has to go from one part of the city to the Lee Fields, then he goes back, and that epic day with Elsie. I think they must they must travel miles and miles. Oh God, yeah, they never stop. <laughs> Absolutely. But they do. They, everyone seems to be always walking. Um, and I suppose it's partly because they've nowhere to go. And it is that sense, isn't it, that, you know, often like, you know, the youth take to the roads, you know, like people give now during lockdown that you've seen the youth out walking about. And it's because, well, they've nowhere to go. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, that, that, that older folk can stay in, you know, but, but in order to have some space, they actually have to claim that outdoor space. Um, but but it is I, like there's that sense of I of movement, which is so important. And I just think for Ophuelan, it's linked to an act of, of claiming, of kind of claiming that space for art, um, for writing, and to claim it seriously, you know, so that, you know, it's, it's, it's effectively saying, look, Cork is the site for a modern tragedy. And that is it in this text. I don't see why it isn't on sale in every shop here in this city, because it seems like exactly the sort of book that people would go for. So it's, yeah, I mean, he's surely due a revival in Cork, at least. He certainly is. He certainly is. I think you're right. <laughs> so can we play censorship bingo, which is, of course, the okay. part that everybody <laughs> likes. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's a really low score already. That's just my thoughts. No, I think it'll be low. <laughs> I think it's going to be low. The first one is, as usual, breasts. No. No, although he, there's a lovely, lovely um, criticism of Ophelan. It was brilliant by a writer I deeply, deeply admire, who's just actually published a collection of short stories again, Evelyn Conlon. And Evelyn Conlon wrote a wonderful essay. It was a, a review, the Cork Review, actually, uh, in 1991 to commemorate his death. Um, the late um, Sean Dunn edited a, a special issue of the Cork Review. And 
he uh, got a lot of people to say how wonderful Fuelan was. Everyone was going, how wonderful Fuelan. And Evelyn Conlon, as she wouldn't, didn't tow the party line. She said he was good in part, but, and she described him as a writer for whom the breast always looms large. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Uh, so maybe it does. Somewhere um, there in the uh, kind of meta narrative space rather than. Maybe on the meta narrative. I think it's always mothers always have large bosoms in Ophelan's work. Oh, that's, and that's in, true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. They do. Yeah. yeah. Which probably will tell you a lot, but I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but no, in terms of bingo, I think no. Evelyn I think Conlon, not. notwithstanding. Not in a sexual context. <laughs> Mammy, leaving Mammy aside. Yes, <laughs> it is that kind of book. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one is bestiality, definitely not. Oh god, no. 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 Although I... although sex is equated with the devil. So uh, it's probably the ultimate form of bestiality. <laughs> It really depends on how you're how you're reading it. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah, you see, you can I mean if you want to be like the real censor crazy yeah, absolutely. Catholics, I'm, I'm saying... you can take offense at everything. <laughs> absolutely. I'll play that card. Um sex work. Well, yeah, they do mention whores. There is the actress thing in London, and I think, you know, there is the thing as well, isn't there, that his mother had a voice. It's very interesting. His mum had a voice and then she stopped. But that relationship I between the mother and the sister, it isn't explicitly, yeah. So like yeah, no, we don't really go onto the streets. So I think yeah, I'm reading the, I'm reading between the lines here. His mother's sister is Virginia, isn't it? And she lives in yeah. London. And then she comes to stay with them. And I was convinced from reading it that it the sort of subtext was that she was a prostitute or, a, you know, some sort of courtesan yeah. or something. And then I reread it to look for the reference and I couldn't find it. So. No. OK, well, I'm glad you read it now because I did, too. <laughs> <laughs> I did, too. It was much to do with her glamour and her yes, a kind of suggestion of ease and luxury. But how did she get the money? Yeah. 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 I think we yeah. could take it for her because... There's something there, even if it's really impossible to, you know, like point at a line. I think it might encourage other readers to find those points. That's true. Yeah, right. If you can find the sex work, call if us. You can, <laughs> if you can find it, we'll get the book republished. <laughs> <laughs> Racism, no. No, although... Um, I, I th do think it's not racism, but anti-Semitism. I think that, that one could very easily read that very wonderful comic kind of encounter with the local rabbi as also deeply offensive. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I'd call it racist, but... Yeah, you see, you could see if that was being, say, played on screen, how it could go terribly wrong. Yeah, I don't think you'd play it. Yeah, and that's that's one of the better moments. So you'd have to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can take that yeah. one then. Okay. Uh, drugs, no. This isn't even drink. No, it's not that kind of book. Not that kind of book. <laughs> politics. Well, yes, all the Fenianism oh, and Redmond. And... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, left, right and centre. Yeah. yeah. I do think that is what you were saying. It's trying to interrogate ideas about republicanism and nationalism, but using older terms that are less contentious, I think. I, I think so. And like, again, w like w one of the clearest moments in which O'Foylan nods to Joyce is when he effectively replays that very famous scene from early in a portrait of the artist as a young man, where the um, where there's the discussion about Parnell and what happened to Parnell and how Parnell was was well, was pulled down by the church and, and how we as a people betrayed him. Yeah, I mean, we have to take politics for definite. And uh, the next one is swearing. I see. I think it doesn't have the coarse language that it could, given the idiom it's set in. That that's been kind of deleted. I think it has. I think. I think Ophelan maybe self-censored in that instance in order to try to get the book published. <laughs> um, the next one is infidelity. Well, no, nobody who's married is carrying on, are they? No, I don't think. No, no, um, no. Crime. Well, yes, the attempted suicide is definitely criminal. It, it is in its first time. Absolutely. Yeah, that would probably be closest, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm not really comfortable including that, though. And I, I think instead, I think that they would, you know, it would be seen as a 
it would be described, it would be, you know, kind of talked about in another way. Yes, as more a moral rather than a criminal act. Yes. Okay, so the next one is genitalia. Well, no. (laughs) Surely not. Did I miss? (laughs) No, gosh. No, no. No. Abortion. No, when she gets pregnant, they don't talk about that at all. So the next one is orgies. No, definitely not. God, no. No. (laughs) I'm intrigued by the list. (laughs) But you see, you'd be surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sexual assault. I don't think so, even though he is, he does kind of press Elsie. Yeah, I, well, I have a kind of a a theory about this, I must admit, and I can share it with you. Um, Please do. I I find the scene early on in this text, I, I find it extraordinary, the scene where... Corny is remembering himself as a child because it's all a memory narrative. And he's remembering his his grandfather reading the story of Faust to him as a child. And there's a lot of intimacy in that scene as it's briefly described. And there's a, an incredible shift. There's a very brief and subtle shift by Ophelon between the present and the past tense. And it's it's very, 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 it's very abrupt it's very short and it's completely unglossed. And as a reader, you know, like I don't think Ophelon does these things lightly because I think he's a very fine writer. Um, and I can't help but, maybe because I read it the first time and this is what I thought and ever since, I kind of never seen anything else through, but through that lens, I think there is something about the, the grandfather kind of almost moulding Corny in a way in which Corny in turn is trying to mould Elsie. And there is the sense of something of the relationship between knowledge and sex and abuse, Mm. I think, in this text. I think there's almost something predatory at times about the grandfather in relation to Corny. Um, I'm not saying he's, you know, abusing his grandson, but there's something which is You see, that's interesting because when I was going through the book again today, I had that page marked. Yeah. And I looked and I was like, why did I, why did I mark that page? Because I hadn't written anything. Sure. And I just, I was like, I don't know why I did, but there was something there that caught my eye. It's very sinister. It's just, and it's so subtly done. It's so subtly done. And there is the sense that the grandfather is grooming, I think, is grooming Corny to be a certain type of person. Not grooming him sexually, but he's grooming him to be almost this rebel. But there are sexual overtones to it because rebellion is associated with sex in this text. Yes, yes. So, you know, it's not sexual assault in the sense that it's an obvious act of sexual assault, you know, for any stretch. I think think the connotations, there's something, there's something uneasy going on there that kind of just flickers through and... I, I, you know, I, I think it's something like that that makes me also, it reminds me also as well that this is a writer who will become one of the great short story writers from Ireland of the last century, you know, because he's a writer who is exceptionally good at, at suggestion. But I think for the purposes of bingo, we can't really tick it. I think we should because he hasn't got many votes so far. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise I fear he's going to be last. And we're Come going to on. game the system, are we? Grand. I think we so. should. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one is extramarital pregnancy, which the, we yeah, have to, the, the whole plot. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> so, yes. Masturbation? No. No way. Surely not. No, not even but by he, spends a, he spends a lot of time on the leafy banks of the leaf. He, he does spend a lot of time of his, on his own mooning around. Yes. He does, but... but Innocently, I think, in this case. Not even in inference. A, no doubt. No doubt. Reading romantic poetry. <laughs> Thinking deep thoughts. Hmm. <laughs> well, there's definitely no sex toys in it anyway, for sure. <laughs> We can scratch no. that. No, there are a lot of rosary beads, but <laughs> oh, <laughs> now that's a blasphemous thought, if ever there was it, one. It is. It is. <laughs> Feminism. I would have to say no. I would have to agree. <laughs> 
I mean, there should be by this stage, but... Uh, I, w- I would agree. So, yeah, we can't take feminism then. No, I wouldn't take The it. opposite, anti-feminism. <laughs> yes, anti-feminism. <laughs> Probably quite close to misogyny, which other people have claimed over it on once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the female characters in the book are not great. It, uh, the next one is divorce. Definitely not. No one's divorced. No, I wouldn't be allowed. Yeah, yeah. And there's no contraception, obviously, because... No, well, she, Elsie gets pregnant. Elsie gets pregnant and they <laughs> seem to have no idea that this was going to happen, which is the scary part. It is. Well, again, it's the idea of being thrown out naked to the wolf of life. They actually don't know. You don't yeah, know. They just don't have a clue. And there is an interesting reference, though, where Elsie's father, when Corny goes to sort of ask permission to marry her, he more or less says, you know, like that he wore his wife out with children and that she died young. And he sort of says, I wish I'd never married her because it killed her. And it's this astonishing admission that, you know, this marriage system that we have of continuous reproduction and marrying young sucks. But I don't think we can tick it nonetheless because there isn't any contraception. If there's another box, we should tick the other box. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, there certainly isn't any menstruation anyway. (laughs) absolutely sure <laughs> not Definitely. that we know of <laughs> no he doesn't mention that but blasphemy we really yes. i mean the politics aspects around the fenians definitely touch on church state politics absolutely and the story of faust is sent i think is central to this book the, the various myths of of the, the story of faust and of the of the rebel who sells his soul for for moments paradise for a moment's pleasure like that is so important it's the story of faust is associated with the grander earlier on in the text it's repeatedly associated with the story also of 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 corny um so i, I yeah i think and like that is surely one of the great blasphemous stories um you know this person who overreaches god um and who plays god and um, because he sells his soul to the devil so yes i think blasphemy is good Definitely. I think the priest would not have liked so much of the book. No. (laughs) They banned it. Yes. Oral sex? No, definitely not. Graphic violence? I mean, the violence that happens in the prison is kind of, it's not really graphic. It's more just... It's not, but there's that figure as well. Is it Condorum? Is it the local um, kind of... kind of builder and he's kind of you know he's very sinister i think there's a i think there is a lot of violence in this text mm, that that builder guy is really creepy there's something is, really yeah. odd about that i think we yeah we could take that one um queer content no surely not i didn't catch any echoes no. of anything no i do still think the grandeur and the grandson in bed together but i'll pass on that because it's really not where i want to go because i found it very uneasy yeah, yeah. No. So if we count it up, then that's five out of 25 that we have to give to Bird Alone, which is pretty low. <laughs> it's pretty low. Is it the lowest so far? No, it's. I don't think it's the lowest so far. I think someone did get three once. <laughs> <laughs> but it is the 1930s. And to be honest, they're banning books that by later standards are extremely mild and very genteel. Thank you so much, Paul. That was great. I have really thoroughly enjoyed uh, trashing out Sean O'Fwayloin and Bird Alone. It's been wonderful. Listen, it's been lovely talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And congratulations with the podcast series so far. And thanks. See ya. Bye-bye. Next episode, I'll be swapping Cork for Berlin when I read Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood. Famous for its decadent nightlife, will not be popular with the Irish censor. Censorship is fundamentally anti-fun, after all. But I love Berlin, so I cannot wait to read about it. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.